My country, the country where I was born and raised, wrote the Ukrainian footballer Alexander Zinchenko in a heartfelt message last week. My country belongs to Ukrainians and no one will ever be able to appropriate it. We will not give up. There was barely a dry eye in the house at Goodison Park last Saturday as Manchester City's Zinchenko and his fellow Ukrainian national, Vitaly Mikolenko of Everton, embraced before their respective teams faced off. The Merseyside crowd's emotional reaction and chants of unity were a reminder once again that there are no quarrels in faraway countries in a globalised world, no people about whom we know nothing, as Neville Chamberlain infamously put it in 1938. Watching on from the stands on Saturday as Zinchenko and Mikolenko embraced was my guest on the podcast this week. And the scene, Andy Burnham told me, was emotional for everyone present. I was sitting behind somebody who tapped me on the shoulder whose grandfather was Ukrainian and so there was tears streaming down her face. And I think everyone felt it, actually, on you know, Saturday. It was, it was emotional. You know, the sense of unity about it is really palpable and I don't know, how, as we stand here today, how it's all going to play out, but it does feel like a watershed moment in one way or another, doesn't it? Unity is a big theme for Burnham. Unity across the north of England, long divided by its fierce intercity rivalries. And unity across the Labour Party too where the wounds of recent battles are still far from healed. A trip north to see Burnham in Manchester has long been on my to-do list, and not just because it's a rare chance to get home and see family and friends. Weirdly, for a man who was last in government 12 years ago, Burnham today feels almost at the peak of his powers, a fixture in Westminster for almost two decades before departing in 2017 to become the mayor of Greater Manchester. He needs little introduction here. This is a guy, after all, who worked at just about every level there is in SW1 over a 20-year period. Parliamentary researcher, SPAD, backbench MP, PPS, junior minister, senior minister, treasury minister, cabinet minister and shadow cabinet minister. Although never the leadership role for which he's challenged twice without success. Nevertheless, he remains one of the Labour Party's most recognisable figures, more popular, according to some polling, than the leader himself, Keir Starmer, and very much the bookie's favourite to succeed him, if and when the moment comes. This unexpected resurgence has stemmed from a remarkable, some might say brazen, ability to reinvent himself as the antithesis of the Westminster politician, a unifying northern leader who's captured the zeitgeist for devolving power to the regions while fighting his city's corner with eye-catching flair. As the fifth anniversary of his election as mayor of Greater Manchester looms, does he consider it a job well done? Or does he fancy running for a third term when polling day looms in 2024? What does he make of Keir Starmer's recent successes and of Boris Johnson's recent woes? And is he as unnerved by Vladimir Putin as the rest of us? Now Burnham does plenty of media, of course, popping up for quick hits on your TV screen or your radio every month or two. But I wanted to get him somewhere close to home and talking about the stuff he's passionate about. So that means a bar in town. It means music. It means football. And, obviously, this being Andy Burnham, it means the regional franchising of bus networks. 
From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, I'm headed up to Manchester to meet Andy Burnham and find out where this newly crowned King of the North is headed next. I was just walking along here before, reminding me of growing up in Manchester in the 80s and just how different it looked like that yeah. sort of canal side culture is. It's Monday in Manchester city centre and I'm canal side with Andy Burnham. The predicted and predictable Manchester rain has subsided for a bit and he's showing me the mass of tower blocks and cranes which have punctuated Manchester's skyline ever since that fateful IRA bomb a quarter of a century ago which kick-started the city's extraordinary rejuvenation. Unrecognisable, isn't it? You know, the 80s was a, a very, very tough decade uh, here. If I look up now, you know, the skyline, you couldn't relate that to 1980s Manchester, could you? Those, those skyscrapers that we've got there now. The city has got a massive energy around it. And just as you look back now, you can sort of see the old Victorian heritage of the city and then the old, you know, 18th, 19th century of the canals alongside. It gives you a sense of what the place is all about. Yeah, Manchester's always done the old and the new, hasn't it, together? And it's always been good at bringing on the new. And, you know, some people don't like some of the modern buildings, but I, I do, actually. I'm just looking up now, there's always a crane on the go, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we had more cranes on the skyline than any city, I think, in Europe or North America just right? uh, a couple of years ago. Yeah. Given the dismal weather... Burnham wants to take me to his local for a chat and a cup of coffee. It's a decent bar and live music venue called Gorilla, near his offices on Oxford Road. I often sweep in on a Friday night because it's just by Oxford Road station uh, and that's my train home, so I'll often just swing by and have a, and, a and cheeky pint. Are uh, you still a pint of ale, man, or are you really a glass of, glass of white, red wine and you're, you know, man in your 50s and distinguished? A, a lager drinker. <laughs> <laughs> I am. I uh, I used to be a bitter drinker in the old days, but I've kind of uh, become a lager drinker in my... Uh, a lager lout, is it, late? I'm afraid so. <laughs> I'm afraid so. Shall we grab a cup of tea? Yeah, let's do that. Burnham works in the city centre, but still lives out near Lee, the Lancashire town he grew up close to and later represented as an MP, 15 miles west of here along the East Lanks Road, midway between Manchester and Liverpool. He's 52 now, though doesn't look it. And with his three kids now past school age, he's rightly taking advantage of Manchester's legendary nightlife and live music scene. I actually DJed at a place called Jimmy's a couple of years ago. Where it turned into a big office party. It was what a... sort of tunes does the Pair of Greater Manchester play? We did a, a kind of a double act with Clint Boone. Did you? Yeah, so Clint helped, helped me, uh, but there was some real good... Yeah, it was very... Uh, very typical fare for these parts. But I think um, Pete Shelley had just died, so I remember playing Ever Fallen In Love by the Buzzcocks. That was my first song. When you were growing up, I was trying to figure out whether it's like, if Manchester is your place that you target when you're like 15 growing up where you did, or whether Liverpool is your city, if you know what I mean. It was Manchester, and I'm not just saying that because it sounds convenient. <laughs> I, I used to get some stick, actually, within my family for being more Manchester-oriented. So football, obviously, it was always the other direction. But anything to do with music or just coming in for clothes, trainers, it was always here. And did you used to go out in Manchester when you were like 16, 17, sort of age before uni? I got turned away from the Hacienda many times, yeah. 
<laughs> oh, I did. I used to, you know, I used to come out a lot, mainly watching bands. Really, I mean, I saw the Smiths at Salford University in 1986 on the Queen Is Dead tour, which is a pretty good claim to fame now. That was fantastic. But I also saw the Stone Roses at the Empress Ballroom in uh, Blackpool. Yeah. yeah, I was at uni, but working in Manchester in the in the summer of 1989, I massively got into the Stone Roses, the Stone Roses. They just seemed to me to have it all. That was the album that definitely changed my life. I was working on uh, Portland Street. I used to go to Piccadilly Records every lunchtime. They used to have this booth in the corner that sold tickets for gigs, and they were just up there. Stone Roses Empress Ballroom, best purchase I've ever made, I think. And do you play music yourself? you play guitar? I do. Uh, I played bass in the old days. Um, yeah, I learnt double bass when I was at school, and that turned into bass guitar. Do you have bassist hair? Uh, yeah, I think I did. That's a title. How concerned are you that Manchester's nightlife is not going to bounce back as strongly as you know it was before the pandemic? Well, not very, if I'm honest, because I was living in the city centre um, this summer. We we were our house was having some work done, so I was uh, living uh, just up by Canal Street. It was a great summer. Yeah, we had a fantastic time. And it was staggering to see the number of people in the city. Um, and bear in mind, you know, when you're living in the city, you see it at different times of the day. And it was, you know, I, I remember having been a bit worried before that, but no, I mean, the place came kind of roaring back to life this year. You know, there's lots of big things happening. Um, there's an appetite to to um, to come here, I think. Has the city lost treasured venues and bars and pubs through the pandemic, or have you mostly clung on to what what it had? Well, this one that we're in now was under threat at one point, and we launched a bit of a, a campaign around it. The um, the Deaf Institute as well, they were owned by the same uh, entity. So, no, I'm very conscious of those things. I've just launched a Greater Manchester Music Commission uh, because you know. This infrastructure that we've got, this ecosystem within the city is truly precious and it needs looking after. Since I come up here on Friday and seeing mates uh, grew up with in Manchester and just talking to people, they're all, when I said to them that I was coming to see you on Monday, they all raised exactly the same thing. Can you guess what it was? I think so. This clean air zone, yeah. yeah. Okay, so a little backstory here. The clean air zone is the most controversial thing happening in Greater Manchester right now. A multi-council proposal to meet stringent government targets on air quality by 2024 by clobbering vans, cabs, buses and other commercial vehicles with eye-watering charges if they fail to meet emission standards. Other cities across the UK have taken similar action, of course. But such was the outcry at Manchester's approach that the entire clean air zone has suddenly been delayed pending a review, just a few weeks before it was due to come in. More than 400 shiny new roadside cameras lie unused. Stickers are being hastily plastered over hundreds of road signs, which have been installed to warn motorists of the scheme's imminent start. Without pointing any fingers, if you take two steps back, it looks like a monumental cock-up from where I'm standing collectively. Is that fair? It's... Well, it looks awful, doesn't it? I mean, um, just putting stickers over road signs at the last minute to change the dates on stuff, it's not ideal. No, I mean, I think it's a victim partly of 
the moment in that it was designed pre-pandemic and then landed post-pandemic. So, it, yeah, it, it is um, messy uh, without doubt, but it's right to press the pause button because, you know, it wasn't going to work in a world where, where things had changed. I think the frustration from our side is it was heavily driven by central government. Uh, 2024, they set that date, we didn't. And we uh, objected quite a lot around the money and that they hadn't put enough money in throughout. Um, and yeah, we have real doubts about the workability of it, but it was a difficult one because it was a legal direction on the 10 councils. So I, I'm not, I mean, this is a frustration. I'm not even involved. I'm not the decision maker. Uh, yeah, politically, the government, this is what they do, isn't it? They set housing targets nationally and then campaign against the green belt take locally. They, they cut council budgets nationally and then campaign against council tax rises, but they're doing the same on, on, on this. You know, they've imposed a directive on the 10 councils and are, and are now campaigning against the consequences of, of that. But the date caused the problem 2024, that was the problem. And we have now successfully argued that it be pushed back to 2026 and that allows us to do it very differently. What did you make of the government's levelling up white paper, which we waited a long time to see and uh, landed in all its 300 odd page glory last month? Were you uh, pleased to see long term thinking like that? Yeah, there was, there's no point in me just taking a, a pot shot at it for the sake of it. I think a lot of it, you know, if they do it, and that's the that's more the issue for me, not not the words that were in the white paper. I thought they were good. Um, for instance, London-style public transport out of London was a call that had come from here. Um, you know, I saw that reflected in the white paper. Uh, great. The question is, are you actually going to do it? And I think this is where the government's got a problem. You know, the Chancellor was giving quite hawkish speeches about reducing the size of government, you know, pulling in his kind of horns on public spending across the board. You know, how is that consistent with levelling up in a in a post-pandemic scenario. I don't see how it can possibly be. There's talk of the support being taken away that was there through the pandemic um, and bus services being lost, public transport's going in the wrong direction. So I, I just think the government is losing its way on levelling up. The white paper's fine, and I think Michael Gove did a fairly good job in difficult circumstances. It's just the reality of what the government is doing. You know, it, it, the gap between the white paper and what they're actually doing is the issue. Last time we spoke was a um, Labour Party conference in, in Brighton and Gove had just been appointed and you were sort of cautiously optimistic that finally you'd got someone to deal with who was a grown-up and at least would give it some proper thought. Has that been your experience six months later? Yeah, it has, yeah. Uh, and credit to him, he came here in uh, early January and I think Michael has brought more energy to the issue. Um, the commitments in the white paper around research and development spending were really welcome. The question for me is, is everyone buying into it as much as he is? And I, I don't perceive that that is the case. And you're looking at the Treasury there when you're saying that, presumably? I am. Yeah, I am. I, I think there's a very different message coming out of the Treasury. Um, it feels like they see this as the Prime Minister's agenda or and therefore not the Chancellor's agenda. I don't know. But it... It poses a problem for them as a government. If they are going to, you know, cut back public spending in the way that the Chancellor is saying, there will be no evidence of levelling up by the next election. And there'll be no story to tell the so-called red war at the next election. In fact, there'll be a 
large number of very big broken promises. Even so, though, to have the Prime Minister make, having made such an issue of this during the last election and to have a minister for levelling up and they've put the most experienced and probably their best person in charge of the agenda and you're praising how he's doing, is Westminster finally starting to come to terms with and understand this issue? Has it, Westminster changed on this? It's changing, isn't it? Um, but are they really prepared to do it is the question. I mean, I think the the intellectual argument for a, a different rebalanced country has been won. I think that is is a change. To my shame at times, I don't think we talked about it anything like enough when we were when we were in government. We did acts of levelling up. You know, here you could say Media City was an act of levelling up. The expansion of Metrolink was a big act of levelling up. But we didn't talk enough about regional inequality at all actually um, but I, what I perceive is actually though the arguments landed we're seeing kickback against it there are Whitehall departments that just don't like the idea they don't like somebody like me answering them back do they they don't like the idea that mayors can challenge government policy in the way that we do um, that was clear during the pandemic uh, when we had to take the stand that we did on tier three but I also see London fighting back as well. You know, London, I think, perceives this as a threat. Uh, and it isn't in our eyes. We're just saying we want what you've got or we want more of like what you've got, not everything that you've got. You're the capital city. But I've noticed a bit over the last year kind of a fight back coming out of the London world, which is I find disappointing, if I'm honest. You know, L London will be in a better place with the rest of the country if London is helping the rest of the country get some of the good things that, that London has got. You spent 20 years living down there though, didn't you? I mean, you've been on the other side. You've worked in the Treasury yourself as a, as a senior minister there. You, you, you've, you've been that guy that you're now complaining about. Yeah, I, to, to an extent, although I was, you know, often uh, because of my own daft mistakes, but pilloried as a sort of professional northerner in that, in that world. And... Uh, and I don't regret that at all, but I tried to advocate for the North within it. You know, I obviously was living here when I was elected MP for Lee. I left London and based myself here. My kids grown up in Greater Manchester and Wigan. So, you know, I did in many ways come home in 2001 and tried within a London-centric kind of government, uh, because I'm afraid it, it kind of was to advocate for here, Hillsborough being, I guess, the prime example of, of that. And, you know, I guess all of those experiences of being down there, of arguing. I remember being the health minister when uh, Gordon Brown was creating the first five academic health research centres, they were called. But then I was the person who had the job of finalising the, the five. The civil servants brought me a list, uh, Oxford, Cambridge and three in London. And I remember saying to them, no, I'm not signing that off. Um, and then a you know, battle royale ensued about how Manchester wasn't good enough to have an academic. It wasn't, it didn't have the research base. And, and anyway, but we got a six in the end and it was Manchester. That was one experience. I was the chief secretary to the treasury, sort of difficult thing to admit this now in my current role, that funded Crossrail. Alistair Darling asked me to put a funding package for Crossrail together as part of the 2007 spending review. But I said to the civil servants in the treasury, I'm not announcing this unless there's a, 
a package of regional projects as well at the same time. And it was a real moment of understanding to me about how the Whitehall system is biased against the North because the list came back blank. And I kept saying, how, how? why, why is there nothing? And in the end, I understood that the Green Book, basically the rules of it, meant that Northern schemes were just constantly being knocked out. The only thing that got announced um, was the rebuild of Birmingham New Street. Um, that, that was the only project that I announced alongside uh, Crossrail. So I guess I did live in that world. I, I was part of it, but what was growing in me all the way through the early 2000s and then into the middle part of the last decade was just this feeling that this system just does not work equally or fairly for the north of England. But how galling for you that it's a Tory government that's rewriting the Treasury Green Book on those terms and then it's a Tory government that's made this front and centre of their agenda? But they're not though, I mean if they were, they're saying they are, but they're not. And that you could argue is, is, is a even bigger insult to the North. So they're almost like saying they are to kind of win support here, win votes here. But then to not do it is worse than actually having not even promised it at all. And so I'll give you an example. So the integrated rail plan that they published late last year, we've been promised a new line from Manchester to Leeds. And we were working on a plan for a line via Bradford. Out of nowhere, they dropped this plan for half a new line and merging a new line with the old Victorian line at Huddersfield, which I still don't believe has got hope in hell of working, to be honest. Um, but what emerged then in the new year was that they hadn't carried out a levelling up assessment of their preferred plan against what we were arguing for as northern leaders. So that just tells you everything you need to know, doesn't it? It just tells you that they're not serious about levelling up. What they're still doing is kind of spending all the money down south and then giving us a second, third-rate uh, plan. So, it, yeah, they aren't doing it. They're talking it, but they are not doing it. And that will become a massive, massive political headache for the Conservative Party at the next general election if things stay as they are right now. Has it been hard for you to see these Labour heartlands up here turning blue for the same time. Seats obviously very close to your heart in some places. What's that been like to watch? Yeah, really, really hard, but I think it, it, it was basically the product of what I was warning about for a long time, which was the kind of retreat of Labour, or the perception that Labour was more for the kind of metropolitan south than it was uh, for, for places Lightly, and you know, that was a, a thing that was in development over a long period of time. It feels like Labour have started to make some inroads back in towards winning those sorts of people back, but isn't there yet? Is that a fair assessment? Yeah, I think I think so. Yeah, uh, I think it will get there. I think the the signs are really good, actually. I think the conference felt like a bit of a turning point. Um, I think Kia is Boris Johnson's worst nightmare in that what he really doesn't want is forensic, serious, integrity, obviously, on show. You know, Keir embodies everything that Boris Johnson is not. And in that sense, I think the battle lines for the next general election are drawn and they are encouraging for Labour and, I would say, very worrying for the Conservative Party, particularly if it doesn't put levelling up evidence on the table, which it hasn't done, and we're nearly halfway through this Parliament now. Feels like a lot of the change in the mood has been down to Boris Johnson's unforced errors, though, rather than Labour successes. The way it's changed the last few months. Well, you know, I go back a long ways, you know, and I remember the 
92 to 97 parliament and I can see real parallels uh, between then and now which is you've got to start by doing a good job of opposition so I remember you know the John Major government and all of the mistakes it was making on all kinds of things you know in, in, in terms of ministers own behavior and everything it was you know sleaze and all all of that and I think you start with that don't you, you start by exposing the character of the government which I think Labour is now doing and doing successfully the bit that's often the harder bit though is then to say here's what we will do and that's obviously the challenge that Labour have got but um, I think the signs are good for them I just feel like I've been saying this for ages. He just needs to set out his stall now yeah. and tell everyone what it's all about. We say this every few months and, you know, time's ticking on, isn't it? We've got general elections two years away now. Yeah, I try to remember back as to when Labour really set out its stall in, in that parliament. I think it was towards the end, you know. I remember the, the five pledges on the card. That only came, I think, in the last year before the 97 general election. There have been positioning around tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime, but I don't think the policies... Are, had, had followed, so they've got time. But I, I would say they do need to um, to set things out. You know, the, Labour rebuilt Britain after the Second World War, and actually, I think a lot of people would trust Labour to rebuild Britain after the pandemic. But we now need to really spell out what that looks like. Um, so I think social care is an area where they they should focus heavily. Housing is an area where they should focus heavily, um, and I think there's a lot of policy potential there that can win votes. We head downstairs to check out the gig venue in the back of the bar and as we walk I ask Burnham how he's feeling about his five-year anniversary and whether he feels like he'll have hit most of his targets for transforming Manchester by the end of his second term. Possibly, um, but transport is the thing that makes me kind of wonder about that because, you know, the, the world of transport moves in mysteriously slow ways you know you wish you could get more change more quickly and it's not as quick as you'd like I remember the buses our famous orange and white buses going multicoloured yeah, and chaotic well. in the uh, mid-1980s and I'm on a bit of a personal mission around that because for me that is you know when you know, when something has affected you personally when you're younger and you kind of like you come back to the issue and think I really want to put that right and so Kind of because you spent so much time standing and shivering outside bus yeah, stops waiting. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Okay. And, you know, my kind of number 26 from Lee bus station to the Arndale was 10p and it became like, you know, one pound something overnight, you know, and it's that kind of experience that you think, yeah, I, I want to see that through and make that change. We've just walked into the uh, back section of the bar, which is the... Um, it's a rather enticing looking bar. Music venue. Look at that. That's absolutely <laughs> loaded bar. Which yeah, clearly yeah. It's been a good weekend at Gorilla. <laughs> clearly. Um, this is where they have the gigs and stuff. Do you ever come down here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen loads of bands here, yeah. In fact, the one I remember most, actually, I went to see a band called Whitney here. Uh, they're an American band. And um, How long ago are we talking? So I can tell you exactly when we were talking. It was November 2016. And the reason why is because it was the night of the US election. Ah. Um, and they were doing this whole kind of F Trump thing. From the, yeah, yeah. Uh, and I remember waking up the next morning, seeing one of the, the uh, tweets from the, one of the bands, something like this, and I thought, oh, oh shit or something <laughs> what sort of um, perception do you get at these kind of events now is it weird I mean you're obviously a bit of a celebrity in Manchester now it comes with a, with a job is it weird people recognising you all the time uh, well I mean I do what I've always done so I've, you know what did I 
I went to see the Slow Readers Club just before Christmas last year. And uh, did you have to put like hood up, dark glasses on? No, 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 no. Just no, no. People are people are great. I mean, obviously, people will come up and and raise issues. But to be honest, that's how I do the job. I think it's the best way of doing the job. Just be out and about and and let people come up and say what they. You, know, you just pick up straws in the wind on a night like that. And it just helps you sort of, um, you know, tune in to where, where people are, to be honest. Burnham tells me one of his favourite ever gigs was seeing The Smiths at Salford <sighs> University hard, it, in 1986, with lead is, singer yeah, I, Morrissey I at the peak of his powers. I know it's a funny thing to say, but he definitely changed our lives in that... You, know, you started today by asking me about Manchester in the 80s. And it was pretty grim here, wasn't it, at the time? It was hard, you know, there was just sort of bad news, whichever, whichever way you looked. Well, kind of Morrissey started to say, well, you can think big and be ambitious, you know, you can do big things. And I remember taking his literature A-level, partly, you know, as a result of his influence, you know, Oscar Wilde and all of the kind of literary references he threw into everything. It almost said that we can be something different and better. And so I kind of, I kind of feel that he did something in that time and lifted. I'm not sure I'd have gone to Cambridge University without having bought into some of what he was saying. Burnham's other great love, famously, is Everton Football Club, based 30 miles down the road from here in the heart of Liverpool. They were at home to Manchester City last Saturday, which must have been awkward for the Mayor of Greater Manchester. Well, that was a tricky one at the weekend, so we're recording this, aren't we, uh, a couple of days after Everton played City at Goodison. Now, it's always, um, always hard for me to go... Uh, to those games in my current did role. Did you go to the game? I did go to the game. It was highly emotional, uh, actually, with obviously our two Ukrainian yeah. uh, friends uh, on the pitch. But there was a, you know, the question in my mind this morning is, never mind all your questions, I hope you were going to ask me about VAR because you'd have got a, a foul-mouthed, triple uh, X rated uh, rant if you'd have asked me about VAR. VAR, for the blissfully unaware, is the skull-crushingly bad video refereeing system brought in a few years ago, which has essentially made football rubbish to watch. Everton got a bad decision on Saturday, and Burnham is not happy. It's just, honestly, what's the point? You know, how can you watch a video three times of an incident like that? I just, I don't get it. Like, really not happy. I mean, I thought it would kind of take away the bias from the big clubs, but when it comes to these sort of subjective calls on penalties and handball, they won't give a big decision against a big club in the final minutes of a game. Did about... you just say Everton aren't a big club, Andy? <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, I'm afraid, uh, you know, we're uh, clinging on to, uh, to the 80s. They're getting more and more distant when we're thinking about, about trophies. Now, apologies here for the football chat, for those of you that couldn't care less. But what you do need to understand is that up here... Burnham supporting Everton is actually kind of a big deal. The North West is a tribal place, and Manchester and Liverpool have always been deadly rivals. And speaking as someone myself who was raised a Liverpool fan while going to school in Greater Manchester, thanks, Dad, I can tell you for a fact that such mixed allegiances can make day-to-day life kind of tricky. And in fact, it really gets to the heart of who Andy Burnham actually is. A couple of years ago, I went to watch... Everton City with my with my dad and I knew I had to pick up a ticket from the Bullens Road ticket office which is like a porter cabin sort of ticket office right by the away end and I was like oh my god so I said to my dad my dad's getting on a little bit I said to him gonna have to move quick here through the crowd I said I don't you know not great to get stopped so I had my 
the old North Face was on, the hood was up, and I was like to him, now, come on, come on, come on, come on. So we get into the ticket office, okay. Then we come out the other way, and I'm sort of, all going well so far. We're walking back up uh, Bullens Road to kind of, you know, get round to the Gladys Street where we were going. And all of a sudden, this voice goes, there's the bloody mayor there. So one of the city hands. And how I sort of like, sort of head down still, and then this chant comes up. You scouse bastards. <laughs> and then, um, and then, that got heard by some of the Everton fans who were queuing to get in. And then they saw me, they were laughing and they went, you mank bastard. So I literally, there was the kind of definition of not being able to win in life. I was, but it was, it was quite a funny moment to be fair. The perils of growing up midway between two things. I am the classic woolly back. You know, I am the kind of, you know, the archetypal woolly back. Born in Liverpool, but my dad gets a job in Manchester when I was one. Um, so grew up, uh, halfway between, yeah. I so I'm of, of of everywhere and nowhere, if you you might say. And uh, so I love the two cities. I love them. I love them both. I have lent more to Manchester throughout my life, uh, actually. And you know more, uh, you know, because of Hillsborough. Maybe people will associate me more with with Liverpool. But you know, from a growing up point of view, I was very much more based here. But I love both places, and I think the two cities together, when they work together, are, are a formidable force. Just lastly, because you've been very generous with your time, I just wanted to ask you about uh, Ukraine. You mentioned the scenes at the match at the weekend. Was that emotional for you to see that? It really was. Um, I was kind of sitting behind somebody who sort of tapped me on the shoulder whose grandfather was Ukrainian, and so there was tears streaming down her face. And I think everyone felt it, actually, on you know, Saturday. It was, it was emotional. And I say Everton do these things very well. But you know the sense of unity about it is is really palpable, um, and I don't know how, as we stand here today how it's all going to to play out. Um, but I, you know, I, I, I kind of it does feel like a um, it does feel like a watershed moment in one way or another, doesn't it? And you've got a family, you know, you're human like the rest of us. You're hearing the Russian president talking about nuclear weapons. I mean. Do you get a sense of dread watching stuff like that on the news like the rest of us? Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's the kind of thing you never think you'll hear in your lifetime, isn't it? Someone actually, a world leader, say that. If I look back at the last decade, things have happened that I couldn't have conceived happening if you were to speak to me, you know, when I was in Gordon's cabinet. You know, things have come to pass that were just beyond comprehension. A whole, you know, a whole range of things, you know, you, that incident of a somebody openly threatening the use of nuclear weapons. I never thought I'd ever live to see that. I never thought I'd live to see a, a crowd storming into the US Congress. I never thought I'd see Labour embroiled in a debate about anti-Semitism, Labour. You know, I never... So I've seen things that I just couldn't have believed would have happened. And that does worry me now when I look at my kids and I think about, you know, the volatility of the times that we're living in. Um, and actually... Though the kind of outpouring of support for Ukraine is, is amazing, it's, it does feel that we're living in a highly emotional time, aren't we, where things can switch really quickly one way or, or another. And um, I wonder whether we come through this and life corrects itself a bit and we come back to a more stable sort of place, but I don't know. I, I think social media has changed politics. I, I, you know, I was an MP for 16 years, eight without social media, eight with... It was like two different sports, you know, it was like playing football for the first eight years and then it became rugby league, you know, because it became much more brutal, much more difficult 
it changed the nature of the game, definitely. And I observe this now in terms of the way it's affecting sort of world politics. You know, it's, it's polarized, it's volatile, it's highly emotional, it runs on moods, and it doesn't necessarily create the conditions for a stable world going forward. Do you feel powerless when something like this is happening? You know, you've worked at the very top of government during big crises, and now you're, something like this is happening, and you're such a long way from those Westminster leavers these days. I don't, no, I don't feel powerless. I, I think, you know, there's huge power in a place like this. And that's the great thing about doing this job. You know, I remember walking into the Department of, of Health, or maybe the Treasury would be a better example, and only ever feeling that half the place was kind of with you. You know, that's the kind of a feeling of being a minister in, in Whitehall. You know, you always get the sense that you're temporary and they're not fully with you anyway, and you, know, and, and you, you have to battle that system to make change. Here, when I walked into the Great Manchester Combined Authority, I immediately felt that the place was was kind of with me really and wanted the same thing so there's there's something kind of empowering about being in these roles to be honest because you are coming from a place perspective and as you know Jack the pride in this place is massive isn't it you know it's huge you know weeks into the job it is coming up five years since I've done it obviously we saw the arena attack and that living through that experience was traumatic for us all but in the same way was kind of showed you how powerful this place is when it when it does come together. So I know what you mean when you say you're kind of remote from the levers of power, but actually you've got a different kind of power here. And again, in a very different context, over tier three, I felt that support here, you know, in terms of, you know, people, if they kind of sense you were doing something right for the right reasons, you know, people kind of show that and that gives you a sort of, you know, a backing, doesn't it, that you don't get in Whitehall or, or Westminster. And have you decided if you're going to go for a third term yet? I'd love to uh, carry on doing what I'm doing here. You know, I, I thought I was signing up for a quiet life when I left Westminster, and it's not proven to be the case. You know, it's an intense role. It takes a lot out of me. So how much more, you know, I've been in frontline politics now for 21 years. It's, uh, and as I say, it's a game that's got harder and harder as the years have, have gone on. So there does come a point where I got to, you know, leave space for others to come through. You're not uh, telling me about to put your feet up, though, are you? <laughs> come on. No, 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 I'm not. No, I'm not about to put my feet up. You know, I've got a lot, a lot left to give. Um, but you know, I, it's, I don't make any assumptions about you know about. Well, I, I expect to stand for a third term, but I don't make any assumptions about winning. Hopefully, I'll have dealt with the clear nair zone by then. Good luck with that. So that's Andy Burnham, the Merseyside football fan who now fights Manchester's corner, the Westminster politician who now makes hay attacking Westminster. Almost five years into this new phase of his political life, Burnham is expecting, if not perhaps 100% committing, to a third term in Greater Manchester in 2024. His appeal up here is pretty easy to understand. Burnham's down-to-earth patter has created a real connection with voters, and the city likes the idea of a genuine big hitter fighting its corner, even if he is perhaps just a little too scouse for some. Whether he ever returns to Westminster seems more likely to be a matter of circumstance than the result of any grand plan. But if the Labour Party does find itself seeking yet another new leader in 2024, and this time, perhaps, when with their roots in Labour's old heartland areas then you certainly wouldn't bet against Manchester's King of the North. Yeah. Yeah.
Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. These episodes are not really time sensitive, so why not have a look through our back catalogue too for others that you might enjoy. My producer this week was James Tyndale of Whistledown Productions, and here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez, and my UK editor is Kate Day. I'll be back next week. I'll see you then. <laughs>